I've always had a proclivity for marketing and curiosity for patterns. When I met marketing professor Pete Fader, I didn't realize what a big impact he would have on my career. At 26, he was one of the youngest professors at the Wharton School, and 10 years later had become one of the school's favorites, teaching undergrad, MBA, and PhD students. I've always been just totally obsessed with numbers and patterns and all that. So baseball and sports was a natural way to do it. I have the world's greatest collection of dollar bills with interesting serial numbers. His research first focused on consumer products, but then shifted into the music and entertainment industry, where he served as an expert testifying on behalf of Napster in the late 90s. Uh, and it was seeing those kinds of data, whether with music or ticket sales or, or e-commerce, where we'd see the same kinds of patterns. As a professor, he engages his students to really think about customers in a way that most people don't. Not every customer is the same. So how do you lead your organization to truly understand and focus on customer centricity? Number one is I started writing all these lightweight books on customer centricity. Pete collaborated with some of his PhD students to help companies do just that. Founded that first company, Zodiac, to bring the models to life at full commercial scale and to show people that it really can drive their business. And boy, oh boy, did it ever. Because in 2018, Nike bought the company. I'm not a born entrepreneur. You know, people look at me now with two successful startups and say, you know, it's how to build a business. But no, I just know how to surround myself with the right people. And this way with people wasn't innate in Pete. One of his mentors challenged him to get really honest with himself. And she, she walked over to a shelf and pulled a book off the shelf. And it was all about the imposter syndrome. Something that we all kind of understand today, but we didn't back then and we wouldn't have admitted it. But she pulled this off and she handed it to me and she said, you're just afraid to admit that you belong here. Uh, and that was a, a, just a real turning point moment. And it really did help me kind of calm down and realize I just didn't have to be an idiot. I mean, I could be funny and I could be irreverent and I can be snarky, but I didn't have to be a jerk. We chat about being open to new ideas. That just because something is being kind of said in a different language or by different people or a different kind of application area that you hadn't thought about before, doesn't mean it's wrong, doesn't mean it's bad, doesn't mean it's uninteresting, doesn't mean that it's not a, a promising avenue. So you just have to kind of be open to that. And that's one of the things I worry so much about my poor Wharton students. So what does he say to these students? Acknowledge your insecurities. Um, don't be a jerk. It, it's okay to be smart and it's okay to be bold. I, I still like to believe that I'm uh, silly and can be controversial, but, but can do so in a more productive, constructive, respectful way. And Pete certainly does so. With two successful data-driven businesses under his belt and 35 years at the finest business school in the world, we have much to learn from this humble leader who likely will never forget your phone number. Welcome to the Mentor DNA Podcast. I'm your host, Mish Pierce, and I chat with C-suite executives and inspirational leaders so that you can leverage the lessons they share in your own career. You'll hear what makes successful leaders tick, lessons they've learned through their successes and failures, and memories shared about boardroom experiences and tough conversations with colleagues. Full bios, book recommendations, and more details about my guests can be found at mentordna.io. Thanks for tuning in. My very first job. I'd like to believe that I've never worked, that I've been a, a professor, and that's given me an excuse not to. 
But before that, I actually did hold some jobs. And the very first one was working in a Burger King that wow. my brother-in-law ran, uh, flipping, flipping burgers or taking them off the conveyor belt. Yeah, that was it back in, in a high school summer. Uh, and I've probably never admitted that before. Not that there's anything to be ashamed of. But yes, I did actually work for a living for a very short time. Okay. And so from Burger King, where did life take you? Then you went straight into college? Yeah, that was the summer before I started MIT. And it's, it's just, just remarkable just how much happens during your four years in college. You're going in as a burger flipper and coming out as a, as a PhD student in marketing. Wow, uh, time just, just, just flies by there. And, and really, uh, my, my life was kind of etched in stone uh, as an undergraduate. And I've been doing pretty much the same thing for 40 years since then. Oh my gosh. So are you saying that you got your PhD and undergraduate degree in four years? Oh, no, 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 no. Oh. My goodness. Um, it, 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 You're like, no, three. That, even doing all that in eight years is, 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 a, is a bit compressed. But yeah, I went, uh, I was just kind of regular old undergrad at MIT uh, and then I rolled into the Sloan master's program uh, and, and then right into the PhD program. So it was still a, a bunch of stuff in a relatively short time. But still, you know, where I was before uh, walking into MIT versus where I was walking out, um, it was uh, uh, a kind of a, a lifetime compressed into a, a relatively short period. And you had a passion for stats. You tracked baseball stats by looking in the newspaper, all of this. Is that sort of the genesis of where you are today? I've always been just totally obsessed with numbers and patterns and all that. So baseball and sports was a natural way to do it. But uh, I, I think you know, Mish, but if not, um, now it can be told. I have the world's greatest collection of dollar bills with interesting serial numbers. So everyone can go to coolnumbers.com. It is the lamest website you've ever seen because I set it up 20 years ago. Um, but yeah, I, I collect interesting dollar bills uh, and I have the universal coolness index to say on a zero to 100 scale, how cool a number is. And if that doesn't sound beyond nerdy, um, nothing does, but yeah, it's, it's, it's always been that way. Uh, and now I just get to kind of do that stuff professionally. And I remember when you launched that site, because it was, wasn't it in the late nineties? Yeah, it was. It was. And it, and it looks that way. And it hasn't changed <laughs> since. And, and I keep talking to undergraduate students to say, you know, I need someone to develop the, the, the new version of it and the mobile app. The um, mobile app. And <laughs> what's cool about it is you go in and you, you have a bill and you put in the serial number and your website says, shebang, this isn't cool or this is highly cool. And this is why. Uh, and exactly. And it's kind of the stupid, nerdy properties. And I, and I really do obsess over this. So I don't know exactly when the, this broadcast is going to happen, but I look at yesterday, December 2nd, oh. 2021, that isn't only a palindrome, 12022021, but if you write that number down and then turn it upside down, you get the same thing. Well, only if it's only if it's years. only if it's digital, like on a on a digital type of calculator. That's right. right. Exactly. Yeah. But that that's pretty awesome. <laughs> that is and, super cool. And and there'd be a few people out there who would say, huh, that's interesting. Well, I've been thinking about this day for decades <laughs> uh, because this is the kind of stupid thing that I do. So let's just celebrate it. Do numbers keep you awake at night? 
Sounds um, like it. It's not so much that they keep me awake at night. I sleep very well, but I do have an affliction with phone numbers, for instance. I, I have a hard time forgetting phone numbers. Uh, and so sometimes someone will say, you know, let me, you know, text you my number and I'll know their number. And they'll go, that's creepy. Why do you know that? Yeah, it, it, it's, uh, it's, it's not so much that it, it keeps me awake, but it gets me in trouble. So I kind of have to keep that to myself. So, so instead of letting people know that I know their phone numbers. <laughs> That is so interesting. It reminds me of the story that I saw on 60 Minutes that was talking about, you know, people who remember everything and how challenging that is in relationships because they don't forget anything. And about you know, 10 minutes in, I said, oh, wait, I've seen this episode before. I mean, that's how dumb I am is that I hadn't even remembered that I had seen that episode before. <laughs> <laughs> that's great. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, so I'm, I'm nothing like that. It's not a savant type thing. It, it, it's something that, that's more about kind of practice and rehearsal. And it's not like I have this, you know, instant photographic memory. But when I see a number, I really think about it. You know, what are its properties and all that sort of thing. So it's the fact that I'm, you know, working with the number that, that causes me to remember it and, and know things about it. So it's, it's very different than having a perfect memory. I wish I had that instead of looking at, at, at trivial bits of information and making more of them than I should. <laughs> so from MIT, where did, what happened? So yeah, MIT, again, undergraduate to PhD program. And then my fairy godmother, Lee McAllister, who's now a professor at University of Texas at Austin. And she basically made me go to the Wharton School. Uh, and it wasn't even tippy top of my list at the time. Um, but boy, oh boy, am I glad I listened. And that's it. I mean, my life was kind of sealed by the time I was 26. Uh, when I, I came on down to Wharton, at first, I wasn't quite sure that this would work out. In fact, I, I didn't think it would. But it, but several years in, I realized just how lucky I am, how fun this is, uh, what just a, a unique and extraordinary opportunity. And I'm on the 50 year plan now. Uh, and it's scary to think that um, 70% of the way there. Oh my gosh. So were you the youngest professor hired at Wharton? Uh, I would have been um, among, but again, it's, it's not so much because of, uh, of, of any, any kind of specialness of me. It's just because unlike some people uh, who either take their time with their dissertations and do good work, I kind of rush through it, or people who have actually spent some time working for a living before or after their PhD. So I just had nothing better to do. So, uh, so yeah, I was definitely on the young side, but that's less extraordinary than just staying at one place for so long, which takes an inertia as much as talent. Uh, and I'm just re really proud that I've had that kind of stability. Yeah, that's amazing. I actually remember, so I had your class in 1996 and I remember the talk then was, wow, this guy is so young. He's not that much older than we are and he's so interesting and he's such a great teacher. So how many years in were you by, by 96? That was about 10 years in. Okay. Uh, and, and yet at the beginning, it was nice because I was, you know, roughly the age of, of my MBA students and I could kind of mix it up with them. Uh, and, and I keep forgetting that that was, you know, 30 years ago. Um, and so now I'll, I'll continue to try to joke around with my students just in, in my class just just last week. Uh, I made some joke about uh, me being like, you know, 78 years old. And, you know, back when you were a student, if I said something like that, people would have laughed. Ha ha. He's not. But now I say it and people go, huh, I you look pretty good. It. 
Um, and man, that's just so, so depressing, man. That, well, you're still a ways off from that. You still have time. You still uh, have. I, I, I do, I do, I do. But, but, I'm, uh, but before I, it was good because I was kind of the kooky young guy, but now I'm the kooky old guy. And it's a different kind <laughs> of kookiness. It's like, you know, ah, uh, isn't that that kind of old guy cute? He still has some, you know, spark to him. Um, so it's, it's, it's framed in a very, very different way, but whatever, I don't care. As long as people are, 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 are paying attention or are interested in what I'm saying, then I don't care what they think of me. Well, but I think you're leaving out a couple of really key businesses that you've been involved with one being Zodiac and now Theta. So can we walk the audience through what those are and what's happened since that time? Absolutely. Cause it, it really does frame my, my whole career, not just the, the recent years. So I've been building all of these these mathematical models, to, usually of customer behavior. So how many customers will we acquire and how long will they stay and how often will they buy and how much will they spend? Lots of questions that to most normal people would say, well, it's kind of mundane, like, you know, who cares? But they should care. And, uh, and these models work really well and they have really surprising implications if you, if you really take them seriously. And so in the early 2000s, uh, I started getting kind of militant about this because it was really bothering me that companies weren't paying attention. We're going in the wrong direction. And a lot of, and, and some entire sectors, we'll talk about the music industry, I'm sure, down the road here. And so, you know, I'm on a mission here. And so I needed ways to get people on board. And I really took a two-pronged attack. Number one is I started writing all these lightweight books on customer centricity to try to get past the models, to try to motivate people more on the so what. And that's worked pretty well. But then to, to really make the models, you know, real, uh, we founded that first company, Zodiac, to bring the models to life at full commercial scale and to show people that it really can drive their business. And boy, oh boy, did it ever. Uh, we worked with lots of different retailers and, and, and pharmaceuticals and travel and hospitality and gaming and telcos and all kinds of different companies to show them the value of their customers. Uh, and it was a wonderful, wonderful time while it lasted. Uh, really, again, every time we'd run the model, say, whoa, it works here too. It was, it was, yeah. it was very validating. Um, but it's all in the past for a very good reason. Because in 2018, Nike bought the company, um, which by itself was the greatest validation of all when a world-class company like that says, we want it. Um, so that was... It was terrific. It was, a, it was just a great outcome, not only financially, but, but also all of a sudden, a lot of other companies that were kind of skeptical saying, why would we want this stuff? What would we do with it? All of a sudden, they're all lining up saying, well, if Nike wants it, then I guess we should. Uh, so that was really terrific. And then we founded the new company, Theta, that's basically doing the same kind of thing, but with a bit more of a financial uh, application, the idea of customer-based corporate valuation. I've won over the CMO, now let's win over the CFO, uh, and that's been going great. Yes, and I, gosh, I have so many questions about all of that, but if I were your customer at Zodiac, and now Nike has purchased your company, and now I no longer have access to your services, so what happened to all those customers? They must have been so sorely disappointed. That's putting it nicely because we, we, we literally had to fire them. We had to go to some of these companies that were doing work with us or just signed on and said, oh, sorry, just kidding. Here's your money back. Um, that was really tough to do. Not only is that a, just a tough conversation in general, 
but it was it was kind of heartbreaking because I really wanted to work with them. Right. Um, but it was all for good reason. And of course, I understand where Nike was coming from. Right. And ultimately, again, it actually created more demand and it was just a matter of waiting it all out. And at this point, uh, the non-compete with Nike is over. And so we're free to do all that again. So, you know, it's just, just a matter of, of, of being patient and and it gave us an opportunity to not only come up with broader applications of the models, but to improve upon them and to kind of get the whole, you know, sales pitch and narrative uh, down a little bit more compellingly. So uh, the, the passage of time is, is nothing but a good thing. And, and let's face it, a lot of companies that seemed interested back around, let's say, 2016, they didn't have quite the right data or leadership. They wouldn't have had the capabilities to really act on it. So here we are five or six years later, and they're actually in a better position now to use it just as we're in a better position to deliver it. So it's all good. Well, I'm going to take our listeners back in time. So it was, uh, I guess it was 98. So it was during my second year and I was continuing along my you know path of being a marketer and marketing even back in those days, wasn't just about brand and colors and logos. Under your study, it was about the data and about analytics. And I remember because I had come from the music industry, we did some really cool projects. And one that I would like to talk about and sort of, you know, reminisce on is when we, you know, my, my project was if we took a bunch of music we take a song and we're trying to see how can we make recommended, how, how successful will this song be because we think it sounds like other songs, which now is basically Spotify and Pandora and all of these things. And I will be the first here to admit, I bet on Apple, you bet against Apple and you were right. Yeah, <laughs> well, I remember look, we had a lot of conversations about that, but absolutely. we were doing innovative stuff way back then of trying to compare similarities and patterns of, you know, if this song was successful, will this other song that sounds like it also be successful? And that was the most frustrating part about it is because the music industry lends itself to these kinds of models and approaches and mindsets better than most industries. Yet with a few exceptions, including yourself and and, and your, your boss over there at Sony, with Diermid, that yeah, Mid Quinn. That's right. There we go. I actually just um, spoke to him yesterday. <laughs> yep. So, so that was the that was the exception, and unfortunately, most of the labels, most of the executives, not only were they not interested, they were like violently against it, mm. uh, and and a lot of doors slammed in my face, uh, which of course led to the whole Napster thing. Uh, right. And as you know, but uh, listeners might be interested. If you're old enough, remember the original Napster, that that file sharing platform, Uh, I was an expert witness for Napster during that epic trial, basically making the case why Napster is, was the greatest thing ever for the music industry, that it would stimulate sales in a way that nothing before ever would or nothing after ever could. And I remember writing this whole report about the goodness of Napster and then the judge in the case, Marilyn Hall Patel, saying <laughs> something along the lines of Professor Fader's conclusions that Napster could be good for the music industry is patently absurd. And therefore, any research that would draw such a conclusion must be gravely flawed. Something almost like those exact words. Uh, and it was just, it was so sad. Because oh whether my Napster gosh. was legal or not, that's not my job, but it was good. And, uh, and the industry didn't see it at the time. Uh, and I vowed through work with folks like yourself to, to eventually, it wasn't so much get vengeance on them, but it's quite the opposite. It's let's bring 
you know, rationality to them. Right. Uh, and, you know, slowly but surely, uh, where it's, it was still not out of the woods yet, but, yeah. but companies like Spotify have really, really helped in, in that regard. And it's wonderful to see where we are today compared to back then. Yeah, it's really interesting because you're right. There were very few people and Dearman being one and um, he now manages Josh Groban and, you know, he's doing a fantastic job there, but he was always very innovative as well as Fred Crochelle, who is also a guest on our podcast. He always was really willing to take chances and risks and try new things and, you know, be innovative. And so I remember then when I went to Ticketmaster, we got our hands on a little bit of data and you said, holy cow, I can't believe this is the same pattern as toothpaste sales. You know, it was like, it was sort of a, a, an aha moment, I think, where we realized sales are sales, patterns are patterns. It doesn't matter if it's a B2C, a B2B, a consumer products, they, they tend to have very similar patterns. Is that correct? It is so true. That really was just a, a, a big turning point in my life because I spent my first 10 years looking mostly at boring consumer packaged goods <laughs> products. Not to say there's anything wrong with those products, but uh, the, it's not sexy like music or like entertainment or, or like, you know, e-commerce. Uh, and it was seeing those kinds of data, whether with music or ticket sales or, or e-commerce, where we'd see the same kinds of patterns. Uh, and, and I was shouting it from the mountaintops right around the turn of the century. And all these people would argue with me saying, oh, they, they'd give all these dot-com hype words like frictionless commerce, disintermediation, uh, all this, this stuff. They were just making up terms. Uh, and, and by the way, it's the same exact thing we have going on now because everyone's talking about how COVID changes everything and customer behavior will never go back to where it was before. No, it's not true. And even though we're not done with COVID yet, ugh, um, we're already seeing uh, shopping behavior going right back to where it was. We're partying like it's 2019. Uh, and I mean that in terms of buying, not partying. Uh, and it's remarkable that in the long run, COVID might have all kinds of dramatic consequences for society and politics and stuff like that. But for actual customer behavior, it's going to be just a tiny little ripple that will have no lasting consequences. And you don't hear a lot of people say that. No. Well, and I remember then later in my career, you know, when I was at Fandango, we were having a heck of a time. Really, I was all about customer lifetime value. Um, let's try to figure stuff out there. But we were having a hard time getting through to the team that really oversaw that budget because it was marketing budget. And the marketers, as you and I know, a lot of them aren't true mathematicians or statisticians. They don't understand the numbers. They grew up doing branding and logos and you know, taglines and whatnot. And I remember having the conversation with you saying, we got to chase the money. You got to go, where is the person who's overseeing the budget for these types of things. And so I think that's really, really interesting that now, I mean, your clients for Theta are private equity companies, investment banks, you know, firms that are trying to put valuations on other types of companies and not just looking at a simple multiple of, oh, 10X revenue, which I that boggles my mm. mind that it is still happening. And it, it, it happens all the time. It just happened with my husband's company a couple of weeks ago. Like, yeah, and it's we true. can be there's, smarter. We can be smarter. There's still a long way to go. But I look at all the progress that we've made since really, you know, since graduating from just the models per se and more into the so what, whether it's the books, whether it's the startups. Uh, and it's wonderful to see how many folks really are paying attention. So while the marketers, uh, for all the reasons you said, you said it, not me, I feel kind of threatened by it. Um, the, the finance folks, they actually 
while they would never sit down and read one of my papers, because it's published in a marketing journal, <laughs> once they see its implications for corporate valuation or how much we should charge for this company as we're about to sell it to the PEs, whatever, all of a sudden they're, they're sitting up and paying attention in a way that they just never would otherwise. And they find that extremely gratifying, uh, not just from a gospel spreading standpoint, but um, but they ask really good questions. You know, they're not afraid of the math. They, they're, they are willing to, to push on assumptions and, and so on and, you know, hold me accountable in a way that I, that I want to be. So it's been just wonderful conversations taking place these days. That's exciting. All right. So I'm going to go back to some of the regular questions that I asked, but that was fascinating little detour. So thank you. Is there something that you have to do every single day? Otherwise, you don't feel like you're getting off to the right start. Yeah, there's the there's the the good answer and then the honest answer. Um, the, the 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 good answer, the answer I should give, which I really do believe in, is swimming. Uh, I'm just an, an addicted swimmer. After I, I try to swim a mile a day, and that's wow. just the way to get things going. The, the but the but the honest and that's true. I mean, I, I really do believe that. But uh, but I can go a day without swimming and I'll survive. But I can't go a day without checking Twitter for hours and hours and hours. Uh, that that's just a very bad obsession uh, just to kind of know what's happening in the world and to find funny things and to just, you know, find stimulation and inspiration and, oh, it's, it's, it's bad. Um, but that, <laughs> that's my crutch. Okay. Has there been a, a distinctive inflection point in your career? Actually, three of them. I mentioned one of them uh, was the idea of kind of escaping from the kind of uh, packaged goods world to start seeing how these patterns apply really broadly. So that was inflection point number one, right around uh, you know the, the late '90s. And inflection point number two was about uh, five or six years later. Was kind of in a, almost in a way stumbling into lifetime value uh, and to seeing how good these models work and again what they mean for companies. And then number three, which we've also discussed, is, is pivoting the lifetime value discussion from marketing to think about the rest of the organization, particularly finance. Uh, so there's really been three big aha moments, always due to collaborations with, with other people who helped me just kind of wake up and, and see some of, the, some of the, these other opportunities. Uh, and, it, and it gives me hope that if I've had the, the privilege of having you know, three you know, just kind of life changing, but all within the same job inflection points uh, that there can be more to come, which is why I don't need to ever leave. Well, you got, you have it pretty good there. And so many people really love taking your classes and just working with you on projects. In fact, I mean, aren't both companies, you have Wharton PhDs who were involved with both companies, Zodiac well, in and Theta? particular, yes, yes, yes. And that, that I appreciate the opportunity to give a great big shout out to Dan McCarthy, um, who was a co-founder with, with both companies. And again, uh, while he was my PhD student, I've learned so much from him. That's inflection point number three, that, that mm -hmm. pivot to finance. Uh, and I guess that, that that's part of the thing. It, this, this sounds so, so either kind of false modesty or corny, but it's really true that we learn so much from our students. And as long as we're open to doing so, uh, I, I really do believe that there are more inflection points, more just, just great things yet to happen. But I'm just really, really thankful for those students like Dan, 
like Bruce Hardy, um, my, again, former student and colleague who helped me uh, see and develop a lot of the lifetime value models, uh, and, and, and so many others uh, who, whether they became PhDs or not, or, you know, folks like yourself, you know, helping to open up music and entertainment. Uh, and it's just, just so much fun to know that in this next group of students, there's a very good chance that, that one or two of them might bend my life in some way that I can't even imagine right now. Yeah. Well, we have a question from the audience, Caitlin Grasso, who is the head of Generation, who's also just been named by Forbes as 30 under 30 in the education sector. She's amazing. And her question is, what's the biggest lesson you learned from building Zodiac? Boy, oh boy, oh boy. I could give um, a couple of contradictory answers. It was such an amazing lesson because I'm I'm not a born entrepreneur. You know, people look at me now with two successful startups and say, you know, it's how to build a business. But no, I just know how to surround myself with the right people. Uh, and, and so that's that's part of the answer right there is you know, there's a lot of academics who are doing like cool stuff and think, you know, they could just wave their magic wand and commercialize it. It's a lot harder to do that than you think. It's harder to scale the models. It's harder to sell the models. It's harder to build a team. It's harder to get the word out there. I mean, it is not the case that if we build it, they will come. Uh, and so kind of lear learning all of those lessons about going from great idea to commercial success, which again, it's, it's so obvious, right? But, but, but living it and both being frustrated by the occasional times when clients or others just wouldn't get it, wouldn't see how valuable this stuff is, or the great gratification when you'd see people, people without PhDs, uh, you know, educating you about the right way to sell your own ideas. Uh, so that was, uh, that was just great. And, and it continues to be that way with, with Theta. Uh, just, just learning so much from the people who work for me. I'm, again, I'm probably learning more. They can read my stuff and, and know my stuff inside out. I'm not sure how much more I contribute, but I'm learning more from them every single day. Yeah, fantastic. Um, all right. So along those lines, you've sat in a ton of meetings across zillions of different industries. What is the craziest thing you've ever experienced either in a boardroom or a meeting or in a negotiation? Like what, oh, what did you learn I, from I it? I remember it so well. It was actually during the Napster days. Okay. Uh, and again, so it wasn't no, the judge calling your, your no, research well, absurd. It, it several weeks before that. Uh, all right, Misha, I'm going to put you on the spot here. Okay. You might not remember the answer to this question, but as Napster, as, as the music industry started to sue Napster, there was one band that stepped up and made a great big scene about it to, to really demonstrate the negative impact that Napster was having on them. Do you remember who that was? Oh, gosh. I hope it's not one of the Sony bands because that's where I was <laughs> at the time. Well, it was Metallica. Oh, Metallica. Yeah, Metallica. I was inclined to say it was Pearl Jam. It was one of those one of those hair bands. Yeah, that's right. And <laughs> so, so, so they made this, this great big deal right around early 2000. But look, they basically got hard copy printouts of people's hard drives. Look at all of our songs that they've stolen from us or whatever. Um, so we're at this, this meeting over there in Napster's headquarters. And again, this is like a, a really pivotal moment in history. You know, uh, you know, Sean Fanning and Sean Parker and all of these, you know, just amazing historical figures. And we're, you know, plotting out the legal strategy and at the end of the meeting. And it was just really, it was electric because you knew that this was, you know, really changing the world. Uh, and at the end of the meeting, I said, listen, I know this is kind of, kind of silly, but I, I just got to ask you, 
could I see some of those, you know, Metallica uh, outputs, you know, some of the stuff that they were making a big deal about it. And they said, yeah, you want to see that stuff? So, yeah, 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 yeah. They said, you're sitting on it. So what the heck are you talking about? Sit on this, this sofa. And what happened is they couldn't afford furniture. So they took all these boxes of copy paper from Metallica and threw a cushion on it and a blanket over that. And they called that their sofa. Uh, and, I, and I remember picking up this, this blanket and looking underneath there and seeing all these boxes of copy paper and thinking, this is, this is like moon rocks. This is like, you know, use, oh my gosh. it was just so cool, so interesting. And I just wonder where all that stuff is now. But, but it was just an, an amazing time. You know, what was going on, the setting like that. Uh, and it was really great that at the time, I knew that this was something special. Of course, it, it went in a bad direction, thanks to Judge Patel. But it was just really a, just an, an amazing, amazing time. I'm just so fortunate to have been a part of it. Yeah. Well, at that time, I was working for a Sony, Sony Music on the digital venture side. And I remember sitting in on the record label side of those meetings, and they're trying to figure out how do we wrap the music with you know digital rights management? How do we protect our music? And one executive actually looked at me and said, MP3s aren't the future. And I thought, oh my gosh, like <laughs> exit stage left, ripcord immediately. This is, these people just don't want to hear it. And because that was, yeah, that was my point is that it was the future and that the, the, the data associated with it and arising from it really could have been and is now game changing. Anyway, yeah, it was, uh, it was a, a fascinating time. Yeah, yeah. Do you have a failure or a lesson learned that you could share with the audience, a flop, something that's happened that you thought, hmm, wow. Well, we've been discussing it right there because people keep talking about Zodiac and Theta as my two startups. There was the music one before that. Uh, again, great credit over here to another former student, Jeff McGill, uh, that, that uh, he saw all this work I was doing with Package Goods. And he's, he's the one who first brought me into music. So let's take all those models and apply them to record labels instead. So we, we formed a company in the mid-90s before I even met you. Um, and we went pounding on the, the doors of all the labels saying, look at these models, look at how they can help you. And it was an absolute dismal failure because they wanted no part of it. But the nice thing is that, uh, first of all, it just emboldened me to you know, want to go deeper with it. And we did manage to get some data out of them that led to a bunch of different publications uh, that led to my being involved with Napster and then in, indirectly led to all of the great things that followed. So, yeah, so I'm trying to think of the, the name of that company from the early 90s. Maybe, maybe Jeff McGill is listening in and can tell us. But it was, again, it was just so frustrating. And, and unlike the Zodiacs and the Thetas, where, yeah, there was frustration along the way, but ultimate success, that one was frustration and failure. Well, and entertainment is just known for being insular and you have to know the right people. You have to know who to talk to. And oh, I remember exactly all, all those relationships. I'd, I'd, I'd sit down with the, with the record labels. I, I can even remember, I can even remember being over at Sony. I can remember the, the woman's name, Linda Fisher or something or other. And, and I'm waiting for them. I'm, I'm like this nerdy math guy and I'm waiting for them to ask me, you know, what are your credentials? Why should we trust your models? You know, what can you do for us? And instead, all they'd ask is, what kind of music do you like? <laughs> and I'm thinking the, the answer to this question is going to, you know, determine whether I work with you or not. And, and it was really embarrassing because at the time, uh, my, my daughter was like two years old. So I was listening to, you know, like, you know, Barney goes to the circus or whatever. <laughs> 
Um, and I couldn't really admit that. So, uh, uh, but it just said a, a whole lot about just the way those conversations would, would go from there. Yeah, interesting. Is there something that you've said to a boss or a colleague that you felt was really bold? I was too bold. Um, I, I was a, just a, a total jerk um, as a PhD student, as a junior faculty member. Um, I really wanted to show people because I, I didn't, it, it wasn't until 10 years after being a marketing professor that I decided I would be a marketing professor. I, you know, I thought I was kind of a, an outsider. And so all the time I wanted to kind of show people that I wasn't serious, that I didn't care, that I didn't respect them. And so your really great moment at that time was when my former, uh, now unfortunately deceased colleague, Aaron Anderson, would hear me just going on and on being this kind of jerky, you know, 28 year old. And she, she walked over to her shelf and pulled a book off the shelf. And it was all about the imposter syndrome, something that we all kind of understand today, but we didn't back then and we wouldn't have admitted it. But she pulled this off and she handed it to me and she said, you're just afraid to admit that you belong here. Uh, and that was a, a, just a real turning point moment. And it really did help me kind of calm down and realize I just didn't have to be an idiot. I mean, I could be funny and I could be irreverent and I can be snarky, but I didn't have to be a jerk. So it was a, a really great wake up call. And I'm so glad that it happened. I wish it had happened, you know, five or six years earlier. Interesting. And I think, you know, before we started recording, I was telling you I have 20 episodes under my belt. But if I'm really honest, I'm terrified that this podcast won't take off. And so I'm almost afraid to put in the work to get there <laughs> because yeah. of this imposter syndrome. Meanwhile, I've been done all right along the way in all my different jobs and whatnot. And so I think it's, I, I still feel it at times. Yeah. And, and that's, that's kind of my job now is, is, is kind of paying it forward for what all these great people have done for me. Um, and, and I see it in so many of my students, uh, you know, a lot of the, especially these Wharton kids who look so accomplished on paper and they're going off to work for Goldman Sachs and McKinsey, but down deep, you can, you can sense some of those insecurities. And so it's, it's kind of my job, just as Aaron Anderson did for me to kind of, you know, cut through some of the, some of the bull and kind of have honest conversations with them and just to let them know it, it's okay to be afraid. And, uh, and it was, it was, in a way, great to go through that myself, because I think it puts me in a better position to get other people to, to open up in that same honest way. Yeah. All right. So you've been at Wharton as a professor for 35, 35 years. 35 years. And you've worked with a lot of different companies. You've sat in a lot of different meetings and et cetera. What's the biggest leadership miss you see regularly? Well, I'm obviously biased on it. Um, uh, it it's but, but I really do believe this. Uh, so it's not just you know, me spouting my own stuff. Um, it, it's companies under appreciating, undervaluing um, the richness of and differences across their customers. You know, too many companies come up with a product and they say, will the, company, will the customer like this? Or what are we going to have to do to make the customer like it? Or which customer should we sell it to? Um, as opposed to, flipping all that around and, say, and saying, it's, it's the customers come first, you know, who are the best customers for us? And let's let that drive those decisions about what products to develop. And, and even getting back to the finance examples, uh, when we're out there trying to, you know, make the, the statements to Wall Street, we should be emphasizing the, the, the richness of our customer data and the value of our customer base. So, you know, we're, again, we're making progress on it, but for too many companies, for too many leaders, uh, that's kind of a, a secondary thought. Uh, and we, we really, really, really need to change that. We're making progress, but there's still 
we've barely scratched the surface of it. That's a good one. Heterogeneity is what Heterogeneity. Celebrate. Celebrate. Lean into the difference across your customers instead of being afraid of, of, of that stuff. Right. And don't answer to every single one of them because a lot of them lose you money. So why that would you focus is, on that? That is right. And that's why I hate when people talk about the customer in a singular way, because not only a lot of them lose you money, most of them do. Well, I'm not saying most of them are money losers, but most of your customers are eh, so-so. And so you don't want to cater to them. But when you realize those valuable ones who are like a thousand times more valuable, uh, you should be doing more with them, more for them and acquiring more like them. I mean, that's the, the whole customer centricity spiel. And it's just great that, that more and more companies, even non-traditional companies, not just packaged goods, not just e-commerce, but you know, big, complicated B2B and, and lots of, of surprising companies are, are stepping up and starting to ask the right questions, starting to acknowledge that there's really something there um, in, in all that customer data. Have you had an aha moment this past year, year and a half? Lots of them. And again, so many of them are generated by, by the students. A, a really big thing that I have a great appreciation for is remember, I'm not a finance guy. Uh, and so all the time through Dan McCarthy and, and others, uh, I'm just learning so much, not only about how that world works, but aha, the, the, the relevance, the like kind of amazing hand in glove fit of, of, of some of my work. So let me give a shout out to Michael Maubison. Um, who's just like this, this superstar, big time, 200,000 followers on Twitter, Wall Street guy. And he has a, a, a book called uh, on, on Expectations Investing. It's the kind of book that five years ago, I would have never heard of. I would have never dreamed of reading. I'm not an investor. Like, oh, what does this even mean? Uh, but he does all this work about how when we want to look at the value of, of a company, when we look at its stock price, we need to work backwards to say, what is it that leads to that stock price? Mm-hmm. And, the, and the way to answer that question is to ask other questions like, how many customers are they acquiring? And how long are they staying? And how often are they spending? And all the kinds of things that I do for a living. So the aha moment is that a lot of like really well-accepted, revered stuff on, on Wall Street really does lend itself just, just beautifully to the kinds of things I've been shouting about for a long, long time. Uh, and when I see those kinds of connections and realize I'm really bringing something to the party here, I might be late to it, but I can really contribute uh, something valuable to them. Uh, I mean, that's a, that, that's a, a big time aha, and it, it really means so much. Yeah, it feels good. Your lifetime of work is, is like finally being recognized and understood by other people. And other people who, in the same way I wouldn't have read their work, they wouldn't have read mine. Uh, and when we get that, that kind of meeting of the minds, uh, it's just, it just, just makes you wonder. I mean, not just for myself, but for everyone, yeah. you know, th- there are people out there who will have great appreciation for your stuff, even if on the surface, it doesn't appear to be directly relevant to them. Uh, and it's just a matter of, you know, finding those soulmates in a way. Uh, <laughs> uh, and, uh, and I've just been, been fortunate to be in a position where it's happened more than once, more than yeah. once a year. That's fantastic. What advice do you have for your 30-year-old self? I've already told you that. Uh, and okay. I think it's, a, it's an important point, which is uh, uh, acknowledge your insecurities. Um, don't be a jerk. Um, it, 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 it's okay to be smart and it's okay to be bold, um, but you, you don't have to like, but, but, but you don't need to be like icky about it. Um, and uh, yeah, I was, I was just re- real obnoxious, uh, like basically until then. Um, and, I, and again, I'm, I still like to believe that I'm 
uh, silly and can be controversial, but, but can do so in a more uh, productive, constructive, respectful way. That's a really, really good one. Very insightful. All right. So you said what you look for is you, you want to get great people around you. I don't know if you directly are hiring these people or choosing who your partners are. I'm assuming you are, or if they're coming to you, but what do you look for in a business partner or a job candidate? So a couple of things. So the, again, the sort of honest textbooky lovey-dovey answer would be just, just natural curiosity. I just, just want people who just, just in the same way that I obsess over numbers and other silly things, I want people who just, just, you know, wonder about stuff uh, and are just, just, uh, just asking the right questions or just interested in the science of whatever it is that we're talking about. So, so I'm looking for that, but then more specifically, you know, I do have this particular worldview and we've shared a lot of it that not all customers are created equal and that really math and, and, and analytics can actually get us pretty far. And so there really are some technical skills uh, that are just, you know, re- required uh, before we hire you, before we have this conversation, not only to work for us, but even to be, let's say, uh, you know, someone who's going to do PR for us, you really have to understand where we're coming from in order to be able to, to do your job as effectively as possible. Uh, so part of it is, you know, I'm, I'm into spreading gospel and I don't want to work with people who aren't believers in it. But part of it is it, we're just not going to work effectively unless we're kind of seeing eye to eye like that. Good ones. What's something that you learned from a mentor that has really stuck with you? Uh, well, I mentioned one before, which is the whole imposter syndrome thing, thanks to Aaron Anderson. But let me go back to really, again, the most formative, pivotal person, Lee McAllister. Again, I talk about her as my fairy godmother. She was the one who convinced me to go into marketing. Uh, And I remember when she first approached me and she said, you ought to get a PhD in marketing. And I said, you ought to get your head checked. I'm a math guy. I'm a numbers guy. I'm not going to marketing. Uh, And so so part of it is just being open to to stuff that you haven't thought about. That Again, it it goes back to the the Michael Maubison conversation too, that just because something is being kind of said in a different language by different people or different kind of application area that you hadn't thought about before, doesn't mean it's wrong, doesn't mean it's bad, doesn't mean it's uninteresting, doesn't mean that it's not a, a promising avenue. So you just have to kind of be open to that. And that's one of the things I worry so much about my poor Wharton students who have this one track mind about consulting or eye banking and to say, you know, God put you on this earth to do something and it might not be one of those things. And so you need to be in a position to get hit by that lightning bolt uh, when, when it comes down. Uh, and so, so, you know, giving yourself the opportunities and recognizing when that, you know, life-changing moment occurs and, and too many people miss out on it. Ooh, that's a deep one. We could go into like three hour conversation on that one, but yeah, that's a, that's a really good one. Just being open, keeping your mind open to all sorts of ideas and opportunities. That's I think, right. I mean, we could talk about this other for a while too. I mean, I just think the the state of the culture right now and where we are in the world and everyone seems so divided. I mean, can you even have those conversations right now at the university level? I don't know. It is tough. It's well, actually at the university itself, uh, it's okay. But, but, but between COVID, between just a lot of things being, you know, so charged, being really careful about what, what you say, it's a, the university is still somewhat of a, of a safe haven in that regard. But but it, but it is it is tougher than it was. And again, I, I often make a lot of bold statements 
Uh, and sometimes people will, will take them the wrong way. Uh, you know, I talk about not all customers being created equal and, you know, some are better than others. And I've had uh, white supremacist type people uh, glom onto some of the ideas and saying, yeah, right. Not everybody's created the same. And I'm thinking, oh, my gosh, this is not where I was going with that. So, you know, you do have to be much more careful about how you say things. Uh, but at the same time, there are certain things that need to be said. Just have to be just make sure that you put a lot of caveats around them. Right. Wow. Interesting. Okay. We're now heading into the virtual insanity rapid fire. Favorite okay. leadership or business book, not your own. <laughs> <laughs> One uh, that at least that I recommend more than any other would be How Brands Grow by Byron Sharp. Uh, and, and part of it is that I really like the book, but part of it is that kind of similar to me. It's just so provocative. So like, what? Huh? Um, that it really gets people to think very differently about customers, about companies, about markets. Highly recommend it. Favorite pastime? Well, if not swimming or collecting dollar bills, it would have to be baseball. <laughs> I'm old school and it breaks my heart that there's oh. a lockout going on as we speak. I'm uh, old school and, and baseball is still the best. Yeah, that's been an interesting conversation trying to explain what that is to the kids. Both my kids are really into baseball and they're they're trying to understand what is a lockout, you know, we're trying to explain mm. it to them. And we have ties to so many teams. And are you, are you still in touch with Bill Schlau from my class? I'm sure with the San Francisco, San Francisco Giants? Giants and doing yeah. a lot of work with a bunch of different MLB clubs in a way, kind of hoping that this slowdown is going to happen for the next couple of months is going to give us a chance to actually think about analytics and do stuff with data. And, you know, let's kind of, in, in a way, take advantage of the downtime to get smarter so when things heat up again, we'll actually be in a better position than, than we were before. Yeah. Yeah. If you had an entire day with zero meetings, what would you do? Sleep, swim, <laughs> check Twitter. <laughs> <laughs> I, it's just so inconceivable. That's some, cause, cause it's one thing to not have meetings, but it's another thing to not have email. If you could oh, just yeah. answer all my emails for me, I'd be okay. But I, I can't even fathom that kind of luxury. So don't, don't tease me. So you don't do, there are some people with whom I've spoken who do a sabbatical one day a week. They just turn everything oh, off. Mish. Oh, you're <laughs> terrible. Um, you know, uh, as faculty, we literally get sabbaticals you know, every, every six years we can take a whole year off. And I've been here for 35 years. And I've never taken one. So you have Real six coming point up with my family. Yeah, it's, 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 a, it's a problem. And, and seriously, that, that's not something I'm proud of. It goes back to some things we were talking before that sometimes just taking a step back and, and, and taking stock of where you are and where you want to go and opening yourself up to new things. But I've just had the luxury of having enough stimulation and going in enough different directions and enjoying these inflection points without having to take that step back. But I really should do it more often. So can you stack them all together and just take six years no, off? No, you can't. No, that's the worst <laughs> part about it is that after 12 years, you can't bank it anymore. So mm. I've already wasted like three, I could have taken three full years of full pay, uh, but poof, use mm. it or lose it. Mm. Oh, What books or magazines do you have on your nightstand or just, you know, on your iPad or your Kindle? Uh, the, the biggest fan of all the different Condé Nast publications. So whether we're talking about, New Yorker, Vanity Fair, Wired. It's just kind of weird. Um, I just, that, that, that kind of all my leisure reading would be uh, everything I could find from, from, from those magazines and others like them. Okay. Favorite vacation spot? 
Uh, my goodness. I love going on cruises just to be able to visit a bunch of different places and, you know, not have to, you know, fly. Uh, and I just uh, love Central European cities. Give me Vienna. Give me Zurich. Mm. Uh, I just, just can't wait to get back to, to the, those kinds of places. Right. And finally, what's your favorite quote? My favorite quote. Oh, of course. Um, this, this really dates me over here. But, um, but back in the day when I was a kid, there was, I don't know if it still exists, but there was a comic strip called BC with all the, these oh, yes. uh, kind of archaic old characters. And I was always mildly obsessed with the Apteryx. Um, uh, and the Apteryx would go around saying nothing but one thing. Hello, I'm an Apteryx, a wingless bird with hairy feathers. That's my quote. <laughs> it is it is pointless it has no meaning don't try to read it. anything into it but that's what i got for you hello it. i'm an opteryx a wingless bird with hairy feathers <laughs> i can't even write that down. oh my gosh okay that's funny it's it's sick well thank you Pete, this is, it's always such a pleasure to catch up with you and chat with you. I have just always admired you. You're the, my favorite professor. Don't tell any of the others. You're well, my favorite now, professor. Now it's out there. Now You've it's out there. Colleagues. I can edit it out, but um, <laughs> you always were my favorite professor. And that's a reason why I chose to continue on the trajectory of marketing during my second year and do my second year project with you and all the projects and all the different companies and your support along the way of all the crazy companies I've been with and some good and some not so good. And when I ran Snacky, you were super supportive then. So I just appreciate you. So thank you so yeah, much. Yeah, well, it is my pleasure. And, and, and let me just, just throw it right back at you that there's not a whole lot of students that have had the chance to interact on so many different levels with, especially one from, I don't want to say when, but well, you already did 25 years ago. <laughs> That's right. um, uh, and, and for you to keep in touch like that and to let me be a part of your life. I mean, that's, that's what every professor dreams about. Ah, oh, great. Uh, I'm very, very happy to help spread your gospel because the world's a better place for it. This is the Mentor DNA podcast, and I appreciate you tuning in. Please visit MentorDNA.io for more info on my friends and musings I have from our conversations. Stay tuned for another great episode next week. Talk to you soon. Amor Boutique Hotel is a special place my family and friends love to visit in Sayulita, Mexico. A quick and safe 35-minute shuttle from Puerto Vallarta and you're on the beach enjoying the most quaint and uniquely designed resort. The first minute I walk into our villa and take in the gorgeous decor featuring antique wooden doors and windows, Turkish lamps, and artisan-crafted mosaic floors and ceilings, I immediately feel myself relax to take in Amour Boutique's beauty. This hidden spot has drawn surfers, deep-sea, and spearfishing lovers for decades. The expansive ocean views and five-minute walk into town for an authentic Mexican village filled with exquisite foods and shopping make it really hard to leave. Visit AmorBoutiqueHotel.com and tell them Mentor DNA sent ya.